What's, what's in the book because it's sprawling and I couldn't really think of a little chunk to read. Um, and I want to thank Nick for coming up, driving an hour and 20 minutes to get here. My you pleasure. Hear me. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's great to be here. I'm here from Brooklyn. Is this not on? You said you could hear me, but I should have asked a more specific question. Is this on? Um, so. Uh, so Fink's came to be um, just because I heard about this weird little story of the Paris Review, this sort of gold standard for literary magazines, literary quarterlies, um, a magazine associated with all these heroic writers and editors, people like George Plimpton and Peter Matheson. Peter Matheson was interesting because he was this writer who was known for being a Buddhist. He was known for being an environmentalist. He was known for... Um, writing great fiction, um, some of it involving these these murky stories of murder. He was a National Book Award winner. Um, I think in the 70s he may have won it for two different categories, the same book, um, one year after the other. Uh, and he was a founder of this magazine before Plimpton was involved. And I just started to hear these stories when a little documentary came out that um, this magazine had these weird ties. And what you used to hear was that Peter Matheson um, had been a counterintelligence agent in Paris when it was launched. So that alone, that little bit of information, just opened up this search where I thought, what in the world would the CIA want to do with a little small circulation literary magazine? So um, I think in the back of my mind, I thought, well, I'll start hunting one of these days when I have a little time. And um, I went to a party. And my editor of this book was a guy that I knew uh, through the publishing scene in New York. And he and I started talking about this. And he said, oh, yeah, I heard a great story. And he told me a story about these three pairs of you guys, Styron, Matheson, and Plimpton, taking this guy, Barney Rossett, whose autobiography is here um, on sale now. Barney Rossett, the publishing legend, on a ride at a writing retreat or a writing conference in the jungle somewhere. It was very murky. And they were asking him to stop publishing so many, you know, glamorous communist rebel writers and start publishing what, what was called the non-communist left. Um, and apparently Rossett, the rebel that he was, said, fuck you. And they, they left him on a jungle road. And, you know, this is one of these great tall tales from the Cold War. So my editor tells me this story at a dinner party, and I pitch it to Salon based on this is a way back into this topic called the Cultural Cold War. So the Cultural Cold War is like this little academic corner of the Cold War that has always been treated as this detour from the hard Cold War. And um, I loved this one book that I started reading in that period called um, The Cultural Cold War by Francis Owner Saunders and I just wanted to be able to like write about that. So. Um, the Rossett story dried up, and um, I couldn't really verify it. And the week that I heard it, um, I got his email. I was about to email him, and then he died that week. Um, so I had a story accepted, and I had no way to verify this sort of opening scene that was just going to allow me to do a review essay on this book from the 90s. So it was a pretty dead story. So I went to the Paris Review's archives, and I found... Um, 
I was trying to save the story, and I just found this folder that was labeled the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which was the CIA's front. So this is this is when the story opened up. It became a salon piece. It got a lot of attention for a, a little salon piece. The Times reviewed it. The LA Times reviewed it a little less favorably. And um, I think this book came about as my attempt to sort of fight back against the LA Times with some of the sort of the headline I think for the LA Times piece was "Read This Salon Article Skeptically." Um, and I was like, well, that's not very open-minded of you. Um, but uh, I did more digging. And so what I ended up wanting to do was to sort of go beyond the Frances Stoner Saunders book, which is heroic. She really opened up this idea. Because what happened was the Congress for Cultural Freedom was the CIA's cultural front. And I'll, I'll wrap this in a moment and we can get to the questions. But they wanted to do something where they were just afraid that people were going to fall for communism because of Soviet and Russian culture. And they said, we need, some of the more altruistic ones sincerely believed that we needed a ministry of culture, but there was no way in the sort of pre-McCarthyite, pre-Tea Party, early 50s, and then the real McCarthyite 52-ish period that that Congress was going to approve something like this, like you're going to fund abstract expression to beat the, the, the you're going to beat the Russians with splash paintings. You're going to beat the Russians with a, a little apolitical journal out of Paris called the Paris Review, with a guy who's got the mid-Atlantic accent and says, "Oh yes, my name is George Plimpton, and I'm going to beat the Russians with with this little quarterly magazine." It sounded preposterous, I'm sure, to the right wingers, to the hard sort of McCarthyite types. So the CIA had this this, this sort of magical workaround, which was a, a, a budget that was unaccountable. So in the traditional telling of this all, um, that's the magic sort of formula right there for the, the cultural Cold War starting. Um, but what I wanted to do, just to sort of wrap, and there's a lot of chapters in this book that go to like Latin America and India, and I just wanted to go a little bit beyond Francis Stoner Saunders, who, who was challenging the idea that this had to happen, we had to beat the Russians through culture, we did, it was a great thing. The secrecy was maybe a little annoying, but we never censored. And that was where she called bullshit. And her book was like out before some of us were super active on the internet or on, you know, before Twitter and before Facebook. So a lot of my friends and sort of my generation and younger, I didn't feel like they knew this story. And so the Paris Review was sort of a window back into it. Number one. And number two, I also wanted to see if in Latin America and places like that, what she found, which was pretty rampant censorship, subtle, less than half of the stories would have you know, been looked at as sort of material for possible censorship, but it was subtle in that way and it was deliberate. So in Latin America, was there structural censorship? Were the more controversial pieces set up to have to go through, the ch you know, up the chain to the CIA? And the answer was yes. So that was my jumping off point, and um, that's kind of where I think the book adds to the story. Great. Well, one question that I had, and I'm really enjoying reading the book. I haven't finished it yet, but um, uh, there's some really fascinating uh, currents to the um, influence of the Paris Review, but just in general, this kind of CIA project with projecting kind of a, an apolitical um, framework to try to counter uh, Russian uh, influence in the world. It seems like part of that was whitewashing very uh, serious problems in American society that were happening in the 1950s. I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate on that. Yeah, the um, the f the filmmaker who also was an inspiration for for um, the book, who who gave me some of the new Paris Review details, is like the third co-founder, Doc Humes' daughter, and um, she was always 
you know, after I saw her film and she had these great letters that were like a, a debate between Doc Humes and Plimpton in 66, where her dad was basically saying like, okay, even if you don't think the CIA tie that Matheson had was very serious, you should come clean about it. Um, so she was really interested in how that never happened. And she was the one who was sort of exposing what her dad wanted exposed. But she did it in a very stylized, very careful way where she kept the focus on her dad. But she would be whispering to me as I was like thinking about this story and thinking it through with her. And she would say, Joel, count how many of the people in the interview section, the great writers, how many of them were women? How many of them were people of color? And she was one of the first people, you know, that after she said that to me, all the magazines, thanks to Vita, this, this sort of accountability um, outfit that is like counting inclusion, counting um, gender inclusion and uh, uh, people of color in publishing. Um, she was saying this before they sort of made the count kind of a big thing every year. They do stats, like who's, who's inclusive and who's not in publishing. Um, and she was saying, like, Baldwin was basically a co-founder of the Paris Review. He was talking with my dad, Doc Humes, before they launched. And it was just all sort of a whitewash, and it was all... so. What you see in the archives of the Congress for Cultural Freedom is um, there was a scheme to get all of the magazine editors in the country, basically, for literary magazines, little intellectual magazines, and even like the New Yorker, VQR, a lot of them are still around, to get them into the same room and say, look, we're going to lose the Cold War if we don't push back against anti-Americanism. So that was, that was considered the sort of transatlantic cultural alliance that they were honoring. It was like a NATO of culture. And uh, so that was the top priority. And if you just count who's being interviewed in the Paris Review, coincidentally or not, it's like European writers, they're white men, and it's projecting the sophistication that they wanted to sell to Europe. Because you know a lot of the anti-American possibly fellow traveler dominant kind of narratives against uh, the US were um, you know Cadillacs and tanks and hamburgers are fine but you know look what Europe has look what Russia has like these, these bullies with their Marshall Fund money are here telling us what to do and the Marshall Fund was was crazy because like in France the Marshall Fund fine print would say like you have to show this many American films to get this money and so the pushback against Americans was huge so they wanted all these guys to sort of agree to this idea of promoting American culture as part of the very sophisticated tradition of Western culture out of Europe. And that was kind of the, one of the first tasks that the Paris Review seems like it was set up to do. So explain a little bit more about the relationship between the Paris Review and the, uh, the CCF as far as uh, funding and as far as uh, seeding articles, basically. If I remember correctly, there was an arrangement that uh, the Paris Review had where it would sort of find uh, stories that it w could basically farm out to, to other reviews all around and just really uh, in that way kind of direct the type of uh, editorial mission that the CIA was hoping to uh, yeah. to do in a much yeah, cheaper way. I think that the magazines that the CIA actually launched and funded and controlled are still sort of turning up. Like some people knew about them back in the 60s when they were defunct and they're like reappearing. Um, the one that you stopped hearing about and are starting to hear about again is called Minerva. Um, but there's these little ones that just start reappearing and so you're 
you know, the, the story has always been there were like more than two dozen, but I think you get past three dozen, and if you count beyond the ones that they launched in a certain period, it just explodes. But then that magazine conference that I was just talking about, that was to create a sort of a second tier of CIA controlled but less controlled magazines maybe CIA friendly, and they called it the Publishing Clearinghouse, and they wanted to just, you know, basically syndicate each other's articles. So it was like ready-made content that was available um, for, for you if you were part of this clearinghouse. And so, like, if it was originally published in the United States in a little magazine called The New Leader, then you could take it in to prove the, the official CIA for, magazine for France. So the Paris Review, I didn't see them on that original list for that targeted meeting where they were going to get the New Yorker and everybody else to come. Um, and I should say, like, a lot of the ones I just named, it's not clear if they went um, from, from what I found. But there were some magazines that were had agreed to host, like I think the Yale Review had agreed to host, so the Yale Review's editor was ready to sign up for this. Um, and on the surface, it looks like a great thing, and the Paris Review definitely got into it. I don't know if they were ever called this part of the part of the clearinghouse, but basically for the Paris Review, it was like they had all these great interviews. Those interviews were iconic. A lot of them were good. Some of them that were famous were actually pretty shitty, like the, um, the famous Plimpton-Hemingway one. If you read that, Hemingway is so combative. If you and if you look at how long it took, like Plimpton is just trying so hard to get Hemingway to warm up, and Hemingway is just like, I have back pain. I've been in bullfights and I've been in like plane crashes, and you're asking me to do this interview, and you're sending me 32 pages of questions, and I'm trying to write a fucking novel. I'm trying to save my career, and um, you read the interview, and just this sort of nasty back and forth comes through, and then. Plimpton was so charming that he'd get him to sort of calm down and answer a question. But that's one of the legendary ones because it's but Hemingway, but some of the other ones were just really good. And so they would get farmed out to all the CIA's official magazines, which doesn't sound very um, harmful. And a lot of people who have interviewed me have been saying, like, well, this is just like, you know, sharing content. And it's like, it's not, it's not an opportunity lost for other authors or, or for names to get dropped or but what it also leads to is this friendly relationship through syndication with the Congress for Cultural Freedom's office in Paris, near the Paris Review's Paris office, leads to a, a shared staffer, or at least a scheme for a, a shared staffer, which seems like it happened. It seems like at least three um, or, or maybe four staffers were um, the Paris Review's Paris editor while also looking for stuff for the Congress for Cultural Freedom because the Paris Review was famously sort of lacking lacking in funds a lot of the time and they were coming out late and Plimpton was writing books in New York and trying to get the content over to Paris on time and he was always late. So they were always like late paying those guys in Paris, their Paris editors. So the CIA also just had all this money and an office nearby. So the first guy to sort of think about this shared staff position was this guy, Nelson Aldrich, who's still around and who's, who was a good source for the book. And he would just sort of laugh at my questions and say, I think I remember it this way. And then I'd ask him a, a week later and it would be the opposite. And I would call him on that and he'd say, well, do you have to realize we were all drinking our faces off. <laughs> and it's 50 years ago. Do you remember what you did last year at this time? And I'd be like, all right, fair point. Um, so he was the one, who, Nelson Aldrich, who came up with um, 
this way of like, I'm working for the CIA's Congress for Cultural Freedom, and I know, he told me, I know, I'm, I know who I'm working for, and Plimpton probably knew who I was working for, but I'm taking the interviews and I'm sending them to the, to the other magazines for the CIA. So, in my own research into the same kind of historical era, the Project Mockingbird uh, program, uh, as it's called, which basically was the CIA's effort to infiltrate the media and literature and the arts. Uh, you mentioned in your book that uh, the CIA paid for the Boston Symphony to travel to Europe to try to broadcast the fact that we're not a bunch of rubes. Right. And uh, so it, it, it did always strike me as like probably the least nefarious of the things that the CIA was up to in the 1950s when you look at the the, you know, uh, coups in Iran and Guatemala and the terrible consequences that have come from that. And, and I, I'm, what I'm curious to know uh, is, is if you have any perspective on what the kind of ultimate cost of this really is, because um, this is something that's been very well studied when it comes mm -hmm. to the media, when it comes mm -hmm. to just international affairs, but when it comes to culture, um, that's something that just hasn't really been completely examined yet. There hasn't been like a perestroika of this whole right. era. Well, the first part of your question sort of separates the cultural Cold War, hey, um, from the so-called hard Cold War. And I just felt reflexively that I, I didn't want to accept that, like as a, as a sort of a, um, a way of separating. I didn't think they were separate, and I, I just, it was a hypothesis. And I thought, how could I break through that very clean separation. And just to back up, like the separation is necessary because the CIA sees the secrecy of the, uh, well, the, the culture warriors who wanted a ministry of culture, see the CIA's secret budget as, you know, a weapon. Um, but they're not like using like the intelligence gathering side of the CIA. They're not putting this out as like, we get information on this side and we give truthful information. They're putting it on the covert op side and that's the more secret budget, presumably. Um, so what you see when there's a coup, you see certain staff people starting off with propaganda and that's usually crass, hardcore propaganda for Iran or for these people that are not being seen as quite as sophisticated as their European allies. So that's, that's a different department. It's a different kind of propaganda. But then the Congress for Cultural Freedom, the way I see it, is it's a long-term propaganda scheme. So if you look at... Um, but, but I will say I agree with the premise that like funding art and sending the Boston Symphony Orchestra is not a big deal to, to Europe or wherever. It's a little bit secret. It's a little bit shady. But it's a, it's a fucking symphony. And like paint splashes. Yeah, they should go and, and, and they, they sent Louis Armstrong around on tour. Nina Simone. I Nina mean. Simone. I'm not offended by that really at all. But when you get into literary magazines, that really blurs into journalism. And so journalism, which is about transparency, you suddenly have um, these, these puppeteers over it who are all about secrecy and propaganda and disinformation. And also if you look at um, some of the staffers who did the coup, for instance, in Guatemala or in um, Iran, it's the same staffers who were, you've got this one guy in England who um, 
I think in June, has like put the final issue together for the, the British magazine Encounter, and then he turns to his other project, which is that coup. Was that Miles Copeland? Or? Well, Miles Copeland was involved, I think, in both, but I was thinking of what's his name, the guy, um, the, the, the Duke of Tarrington, or the Baron of Tarrington, um, oh. Woodhouse, Monty, oh, Monty right, right. Woodhouse. Um, Miles Copeland being the father of the police drummer, yeah. Yeah, which is interesting. That is interesting. Every breath you take, I'll be watching you. <laughs> so I take it then um, uh, that I was going to ask you about the title of the book, actually, thanks. Like, you're basically trying to draw a clear understanding about the kind of ethical breaches that happen. And, and I'm curious. When when you came up with that title, if you were thinking in particular about Matheson, because I mean the, the book starts off with an effort to try to get to the bottom of this by Hume, right? Yeah. And I take it that all this sort of came out willy nilly, like in the late seventies, around the time that the CIA's ties to the media were exposed by Carl Bernstein. It was the yeah. same year, I think, that the New York Times exposed mm-hmm. Matheson. Uh, but he never really suffered any career consequences from this at all. It seemed like he got annoyed. Yeah. He was being hounded most of his career. But I think he was doing this thing where he was like, I don't really like being asked about this, but whenever I have a new book that comes out, I get asked about it, and it helps the book. I mean, I, I don't have any evidence that that's what he thought, but he was always talking about it when a book was coming out and never, uh, you know, at any other times. Um, and I, I hounded him a little bit about it before he died, and what he did was pretty slick. He would make a plan to see me. He lived out in Long Island. I would get ready to go on the train out to Long Island, and then that morning he would cancel, and he'd keep doing this, like, one or two months out. So after, you know, doing it five or six times, a year has passed. Um, and I did sneak in to see him once through this little Buddhist magazine that he was friends with. Um, and I tried to just sort of ingratiate myself, um, you know, going undercover, um, watching him being interviewed by uh, by some friends who were talking about his, his role as a Buddhist teacher. And I just, like, went up and shook his hand. And I was like, remember me. I'm Joel Whitney. I'm going to call you. Um, I'm here with tricycle, um, and uh, it didn't work. Um, but uh, for the uh, yeah, I mean the, the way I see Mockingbird um, and the the Times article was by Crutzen. So 1977, um, John Crutzen does an article in the Times, and he's just basically like giving this huge survey of CIA puppeteering and secrecy, and like taking over a newspaper in every capital of every country on the planet. You know, 200 newspapers that can get a story that the CIA likes to run. They can get a story killed that they don't like. There's always someone on staff who can do this, who can pull the strings. But, uh, you know, he's focusing on the world at large. Bernstein's, I think, looking at the same stuff. But Bernstein is looking at the Times. He's looking at, like, all the mainstream outlets in the U.S. And he's the one who outs the, ty- the, the Operation Mockingbird, the name. But I think they were looking at the same stuff. But it was so vast they were looking at different angles of it and seeing this huge web of just strings being pulled. And so the way I get to literary magazines to Mockingbird, I feel like it's like this. Basically, the Congress for Cultural Freedom, the cultural CIA, and the student CIA are secret, and they want to keep it secret. So when it's outed, they start to amp up the penetration of the media, and they they focus on the anti-Vietnam War press and the student press. Ramparts, for example. Ramparts, which outed them. So that's I think that's chaos. It's a little bit smaller scale. And then I 
I haven't seen like the papers that show chaos growing, but you do see like the same kind of thing, like the program to get Pasternak's uh, Dr. Shivago smuggled into Russia in Russian because the Russians wouldn't. Uh, Talk about all that about Dr. Shivago. Yeah, Dr. Shivago was a weird CIA program, and um, it ends up with the name A.E. Dinosaur, and it was a CIA program around one book. And they wanted translations of it um, to get around the world. They um, wanted it to be considered for the Nobel. And they didn't really need to get involved. It was a great book. But they felt like they needed to get involved because it was being suppressed. And so they were doing, as they saw it, this altruistic thing to help this guy get his book back into his home country. and the Paris Review sort of piggybacks on this program. They see an opportunity to maybe make some money. And they're like one of the first big outlets that wants to interview him. But by the time they get there in 1960, he's just gone through the ringer. And he's been you know, yelled at and shouted down in the, in the, you know, the, the, the Soviet Writers' Union. And um, he's been denounced on TV, threatened with exile. Dear old Ernest Hemingway sort of comes out with a quote and saying, well, he won't want to leave his beloved country, but we will make a home for him in the Republic of Letters. And you like hear this sensitive side of Hemingway. And um, the Prime Minister of India says basically the same thing. But he says, no, I can't leave. I, I love this country. And he gets through the worst of it. And the sort of the, the little detente that he formed with um, the authorities was like, just stop doing interviews. And this Russian woman who's never done an interview before in her life, who's a painter, who like George Plimpton and Doc Humes knew, suddenly she's sent over. She's Russian, so she's got a cousin who can get her to see, you know, get her through customs and like get her to see Pasternak. And she walks up to his house and it says in French, German, and English, no foreigners. (laughs) And she walks up and she has a conversation with him and he's basically like, I just don't want to talk. It's like the Hemingway interview all over again. I don't want to talk to more interviewers. I want to finish this play that I've been working on. Like, the worst is over. Leave me alone. Um, So the Paris Review is not highly involved, but then it turns into a TV program that they're involved in. Um, And then the AE Dinosaur just becomes a permanent full-time CIA scheme where they're just smuggling in dozens of books a year. And they're like, it worked. Let's just keep doing it. We got a Nobel. (laughs) Um, So, but you see all these little windows into these things that are related to like Mockingbird, media penetration, publishing houses. It's just, it's a huge, huge amount of money. Well, and they, the CIA helped get his book, tran- get Dr. Javaga translated, but it was full of typos, and then the Russians went after uh, Pasternak's uh, paramour, right? Yeah, she was his, his lover, but she was also like his, his literary agent, and every time he got denounced, what a dick, he couldn't take it, so he would send her and she'd be like, oh, my lover is just being denounced. Um, <laughs> like, I have to go tell him this. But she was tough, and she would go back and report to him, and she would watch him when he would start to cry. And I, I was really, like, I was a researcher who knew that this book could be really dry. Like, I'm obsessed with con- these conspiracies, and they're, they're, they're true conspiracies, and they're well-documented, and I wanted to sew them together, but I wanted it to rise above just like, I mean, George Plimpton can write a badass letter, and some of these guys have really nice style when you can quote them. But I wanted it to be emotional, too, so I would just always stop on those moments where, like, oh, here's Pasternak crying about persecution. And he's actually talking about taking 
pills to kill himself and she's talking him out of it and that's in her memoir about it and so I was even with, with um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez I found a moment where he cried it was about when one of his political um, one of his political heroes was killed um, and it was like early but he gets sucked into this magazine and his masterpiece is finally here and the CIA magazine gets two chapters of it and he finds out who's paying for it and he's like you fucker I feel like a cuckold um, and he denounces the guy and says, I will never work with you again. And um, so, yeah, the, the, the scheme was multi, multifaceted and um, it involved people and their family members and writers that we know and lesser writers. And so finding a narrative in that was, for me, like a fun part of the challenge, um, just sort of finding a, an arc. Um, and, the, you know, the arc is sort of set up by the form. The form is like, this is the form of scandal, basically. Like, this will be exposed in 67. And so get, setting up all of these guys who are, like, hopeful about this program, they really think it's, like, being funded by, you know, um, you know, generous donors from the United States who have no ties to government, some of them. And then, you know, some people have called them out on that. Like, um, I told you, I did an interview with James Rise, and he was like, you don't think these guys knew who was paying the bills for all these magazines? And, yeah, there were open secrets, and a lot of them did. So, but this was a major, you know, part of interventionist American foreign policy for a long time. It wasn't even necessarily illegal uh, for the CIA to be doing this, per se, unlike some of what it did in terms of spying on uh, people uh, that were affiliated, like James Baldwin, for example, people that were subjected to a lot of harassment. That, that's a different question. But to what extent do you think that most of this, after it was pretty much exposed, is a thing of the past now? And to what extent do you think it's still something that is relevant today? And I mean, uh, with particular particular regard to the, the phrase you use in the book, militant liberty, which seems like well, you should explain what that is. But also, it's, I think it's a, uh, a mission that has kind of crept into other cultural arenas uh, outside of high culture, for example, Hollywood, um, mm -hmm. where it was part of the program all along, back uh, as far back as the 1950s. Yeah, well, I, see the, I see the phrase militant liberty in the context of like Hollywood penetration, where um, you've got joint chiefs of staff, um, even in the early to mid-50s, sitting down with John Wayne and, and John Ford and telling them, like, you know, you need to do propaganda for the Navy, and we're going to show you how. And then once we show you how, you're going to show the world how. And militant liberty is just, like, make us look good, but, like, you know, liberty is on the march. Lots of flags, um, lots of lots of army helmets, and, you know, John Wayne. Um, but as far as whether it's still happening now, I think that the the book ends people tell me not to have the spoiler but the book ends in Afghanistan and it's a Paris Review guy who's doing this stuff that leads to like Al-Qaeda and so he's he's there he's not there personally but he's got a, a foundation that is hiding behind refugee relief so and it's recruiting from the refugee community um, as it has been since the the CIA has been since the early 50s but it's basically doing media spying so you get cameramen who are part of Mockingbird they're part of the CIA sort of they signed a secrecy oath they'll debrief the CIA but they're there deliberately to bait the Soviets in to give them their Vietnam and to get war crimes on camera and then to mass distribute through the American media those war crimes and so I found these documents that um, I've sort of been waiting for the other shoe to fall on that like I've been waiting for John Train who's still alive to just sort of 
react. I'll put it that way. Um, and I had a few nice interviews with him, but he was sort of cranky, and I left most of it out. Um, he, he basically, I sat down with him. He's like, I was a conduit. I felt the media was too left-wing. I pulled it right. Um, but this brings us up to where we are. Like one of the guys, they were embedding their media spot. This is, has nothing to do with the Paris Review, except one of its founders was this very rich guy who um, wanted to do this stuff and wanted to bring the Soviets down. And, um, and he's using refugee relief as a cover, and he's using the media as a cover, and he's using the media as a weapon as well. And um, he's got these documents that's a very clear trail of what he's doing and how he's covering it up through non nonprofit foundations. So certainly the nonprofit foundations as a conduit, so to speak, which is what the CIA always used them for, that just pretty pretty much, I assume that that happens openly through think tanks. Like, you can give money to people who are scholars whose work you like through think tanks. Um, as far as the media goes, I have friends who are in the media now who are just like, I feel like we should assume some of that is still going on. Um, I haven't looked past this, but this, this book ends in Afghanistan, like where we're funding the guys who became the warlords and who became the mujahideen and who became the jihadi fighters whose second and third generations were fighting now as ISIS. And one of the, one of the um, you know, this, this guy that I've been talking about, this Paris Review guy, he's got his media spies embedding with this guy Hekmatyar, who's the warlord who was just killing people wantonly in, um, in the capital after the Soviets leave. And he was like, last year he was for ISIS. He's still in Afghanistan. He's still a player. He's a little bit diminished. This year he's against ISIS. Um, but this, you know, we know that the hard CIA created Al-Qaeda, essentially. Um, he created the jihadi, you know, brought over foreign fighters, paid them. We know this from Charlie Wilson's war. We know this from various books by Robert Dreyfus. But this was the cultural version of that, and it was, it was actually a fun little eureka moment. So that gets us to the 80s and maybe into the 90s. Um, and I don't think we've had the conversations that we would need to have to sort of diminish that. Um, you do see some of it going legit, like... In 2013, um, what's his name, Michael Hastings, reported in BuzzFeed that we used to have this rule against propaganda to our own people within our own borders. Right. And in the defense authorization bill that year, which Obama had to sign because it was tucked in and he needed to authorize the, the defense bill, um, it's no longer illegal for... And this is the first election we've just had where it's no longer technically illegal for us to be propagandized to by our own government. So that's pretty fucked up. Right. Um, and what goes through the, the Pentagon to get around the CIA's uh, charter? Well, they've always done that. But now I think that, yeah, I think there was sort of a, there was a softly worded ban on it, the Stuart, whatever it's called. Um, not Myers-Briggs, but Stuart, Stuart something. Uh, Smith, sorry, Smith, uh, I'm blanking on the the law, but even the military was not supposed to do it to us, I don't believe, um, at home. There was a certain amount. Right. That it was all fudgeable. They, they had I mean, ways of trying to justify it, but yeah, technically they weren't really supposed to. They weren't to. really supposed to. Now it's fine. Right. <laughs> right. Well, um, maybe we should open it up to questions from the, sure. from the audience. I'm curious, how, how many years were you working the book? And, and also, sort of, what was the path with kind of archives, freedom of information requests? You know, I did. You know, the the, the the nice thing about the cultural cold war, I 
you know, I, I mock the idea that it's sort of treated as a separate thing. But um, the nice thing is that there are people who don't think that it's a, a very big threat. To, for, so, so it's like, you're not supposed to talk about it. It was an open secret. It was funded secretly. But um, the writers who were involved, there's always been like these little three to five pages in their biographies. Um, and then their papers just get dumped and they don't usually get vetted. So it's a way around. You don't even need to FOIA some of these guys. Um, John train the Paris Review guy who ends up in Afghanistan he dumped his papers a few years ago at a, a college in New Jersey they didn't have much of a, a tie to Seton Hall and he told me he just assumed nobody was ever going to be interested in him he's known as the guy who like wrote the first book about Warren Buffett and helped solidify his reputation he wrote a weird book maybe with some of the characters at the Paris Review about the joy of really unlikely names and like people with really goofball names and he wrote a whole book on that. He does humor books with Plimpton, he writes about finance, but he's like a financial guru and I guess he just thought no one was going to go examine his papers. Um, I didn't do any FOIAing. I was supposed to turn this around on a crash schedule. I was supposed to turn it in at like 20,000 words. I think I turned it in at like 120,000 words. My editor narrowed it down. I made it longer. I kept adding chapters when he thought it was supposed to be done. So I added like two years to my publishing cycle. And then to answer how long it was, I think he just made the font too small. I shouldn't tell you that. You can still read it with a magnifying glass. Um, but uh, you do need good eyesight to read it. Um, um, yeah, he, he, was, he got it down to below 300 pages, and when I saw it, I was just like, oh, I see how you did that. Is that 10 or is that 9? Is that sans serif 9 that you did? No, it's fine. It's readable. Just not if you're very, very old. I'm just finishing reading the Stoner Saunders book. Uh-huh. One person I've never heard of who talks like a man who seems kind of amazing. I wonder if he went into him with this David Josselson. Michael Josselson. Yeah. Um, he was dead before I started looking into this, but um, she was the first to, like, to, to critically interview him, his, his wife, his, go look at his papers in the Congress for Cultural Freedoms Archives in Chicago, excuse me. And um, she, she had this. She told me this on the record, and I'm going to write about this, so it's, I'm allowed to say it, but she would basically, um, she would think she knew what the CIA could say. She'd go to see these guys like him. I think maybe he was dead, um, but she'd, he'd, she'd go to see his, um, his number two and his associates, and she'd, she wouldn't say, I think this is what you guys actually did, and it's never come out. She would bring a bottle of scotch. She would give them a glass, and... Um, she would say, somebody told me you guys censored these pieces, you had an official censorship policy, um, and all of these people would say, yep. Josselson, when the, when, the, when the story first broke in 67, he was the most tarnished. He lied to all his friends, people who trusted him and loved him, were like, you were the CIA guy, you were the guy who knew, you were the guy responsible for all of us. So the first big book that comes out about this is by another Congress for Cultural Freedom guy who's trying to restore Josselson's reputation. Um, he does a pretty good job, actually. He's an insider, he's, telling, he's defending his own company, so to speak. Um, he's cleaning up the reputation. But if this program was going to work, it was like, we do better culture, and therefore don't think of it as propaganda, and therefore we can't be censoring it. We can't be manipulating people. So when the whole thing is proven to be a CIA scheme, and it's all funded by the CIA, all of that goodwill towards all this culture just goes out the door. So it's absolutely in their interest to put out articles, to, to write books, to have their friends write books, just defending each other and saying, like, 
We published Borges. We published all these great Garcia Marquez. We published, um, you know, the first in the Paris Review. We published Sam Beckett when he was young. You know, when he was untranslated into English. It's all true. They did all that, but it's like, like you know, what do they leave out? And so Jocelyn is like at the top of that question. He's sort of like the mastermind, and he looks. I think if they ever make a movie, it'll be um, what's his name, Michael. Giacomini, what's his name? G Giamatti, Giamatti, Paul Giamatti, rather. The guy from Sideways, he looks just like him. Oh, you mentioned that in the book, actually. Yeah. Do you know if the CIA has ever done its own internal study of this whole um, aspect of the cultural Cold War? Um, that's a good question. I don't know if they have. Yeah. It would be very self-serving. Yeah. Well, they have a CIA historian and... I think he's still writing about the Bay of Pigs. Right. They're a little, a little backlog. <laughs> the, tenth, the, the tenth volume on the Bay of Pigs. Anybody else have a question? If not, we're going to Dresden Room after this. All right. You want to sign some books? Yeah, I'll sign some books. All right. All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. Thanks for uh, inviting me up. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.